Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it's almost time to turn back the clocks. Daylight savings time comes to an end this weekend. There are lots of movements out there to put an end to the annual spring forward and fall back. But we find out why standard time may actually be better for your body and brain. We look into how a Russian spy posing as a Brazilian academic specializing in Arctic security was finally found out by Norwegian police last week. That after he spent nearly a decade studying in Ottawa and Calgary. Should he have been caught earlier? And should he have been caught here? We speak to Ontario parents left scrambling tonight after the province of Ontario and the union representing 55,000 educators failed to reach a deal. The Ford government is under fire for imposing a new contract on them using the notwithstanding clause and making it illegal for them to strike. They're striking anyway. How will this high-stakes labor showdown end? But first, the federal government's fall fiscal update shows Canada is heading into some stormy economic seas this winter. Are we ready for what lies ahead? First up, uh, it's fall, so we also got a sense of the country's finances today with the fall economic update that Christia Freeland, the finance minister, delivered in Ottawa. It made for a suitably bleak November type of news. She was warning of a potential recession next year and predicted, quote, significantly weaker growth in Canada and around the world. Canada is ready to weather the storm, she says, projecting a $36.4 billion deficit for this fiscal year. That's actually down uh, by about $15-16 billion from what was predicted back in the budget in the winter. And apparently that's going to shrink over the next four years before hitting a surplus, believe it or not, a surplus, if you can believe the predictions, which aren't always that accurate, clearly, uh, but a surplus of $4.5 billion by 2027-2028. The world economy is slowing down, and the Canadian economy is slowing down. Uh, that is the natural, indeed, the intended consequence of the interest rate increases by the Bank of Canada. And it was important for me today to be candid about that with Canadians. Christia Freeland and her fall economic update. Most of the major spending, I gather, is being held, if there is any, for the budget in the spring. Uh, the Liberals here are having to try to uh, fight inflation by not spending too much. In other words, if you're trying to, uh, if your monetary policy is trying to battle inflation, you can't be pouring too much money into the economy. That's what happened in England. You saw what happened in Britain, right? We don't want that to happen here. Uh, there are some new measures, though, uh, including plans for a new tax on share buybacks. Incentives for green energy investment in response to the U.S., that massive U.S. Inflation Reduction Act that included a major package of tax and climate policy reforms, boosts for lower wage workers and student loan interest relief. We are acting with compassion because we know a lot of people have it hard right now and they need our support. But at the same time, we're being very careful that the measures we put in place are targeted and are fiscally responsible because we want to get past this inflation as soon as we can. And we know that part of the way to do that is for the government to be fiscally responsible right now. So are they being fiscally responsible? Let's look beyond the numbers to find out what story this economic update tells us about the state of our economy. And to help us do that is Pedro Antunes. He's the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So we always watch these things with a lot of uh, curiosity to see exactly where the country's headed economically. Uh, what did you make of what was announced today? Just how stormy are are the times ahead going to be? Well, in, in fact, I've, I've been trying to uh, kind of get some cl- or give some clarity around, you know, what most of the baseline scenarios that are out there are telling us about about the economy. Uh, and again, if you look at the baseline projection that uh, is the foundation for the economic update or the same projection or a similar projection that is the foundation for the Bank of Canada's uh, monetary policy and the you know most private sector forecasts, are, uh, forecasts that are out there, uh, what they're really telling us is this is a scenario where monetary policy is su- successful. We slow the economy down enough. We have essentially flat growth for two or three quarters, or in some cases, slight declines, very slight declines, uh, which qualify perhaps as a technical recession. I would I would call those small R recessions. And the success on monetary policy is that inflation in these forecasts comes down from you know this seven percent that we're facing this year to essentially by 2024 getting inflation back down to to within that band of one to three percent. So those are the good news scenarios. The, uh, the bad news scenarios, of course, uh, are the ones where we don't get inflation down. Central banks are forced to keep uh, ratcheting up on the interest rates, and uh, we end up with, a, I would su- suspect, a much harder landing, perhaps later down the road. Yeah, we didn't really get, I mean, I gather, you know, in uh, Christian Freeland's announcement today, we saw plans for both scenarios, right? They don't really know which one to expect. I guess it's hard to predict. Uh, I mean, we saw interest rates um, rise in England again today and, you know, double digit inflation there. So everyone's struggling with these same issues. Um, What about spending? I mean, there was some spending in here today, not too, too much, but some. Yeah, well, uh, I guess the spending, uh, certainly, if you look at where the projections would have taken us now with this kind of stronger inflation does feed government revenues. And uh, that typically is uh, uh, allows government if they're, you know, uh, to improve on their fiscal situation relative to what was announced in the budget. Now in the budget in February of this year, we essentially had a 50, almost a $53 billion deficit this fiscal year coming, I should say. Right. Uh, so 2022, 2023. We could have seen that improved by about $30 billion. We went out and spent a little more, about $5 billion a year uh, over the course of the seven years, of, or sorry, the six years of the projections that, the, that this economic update is looking at. Uh, now, those measures are essentially split with uh, some uh, relief uh, for lower, targeted relief, I would say, for lower income households. And I, I think certainly that's uh, positive in this very inflationary environment. Uh, the other measures are uh, essentially to try and make us a little more competitive. And they're modest measures, I would say, overall, uh, to try and uh, essentially incent investment and, and keep investing also in uh, reskilling and retraining our workers. Both of these are modest. Uh, they do deteriorate the fiscal situation a little bit. You know, as, at least on the targeted measures, certainly we do know that some households are feeling the pain from this high inflation scenario. Yeah, I mean, you know, to speak sort of plain English in this, uh, I didn't see anything in this, really. I mean, let's be frank, and I think Christy Freeland admitted as much. There's very little they could actually do to provide enough money to help most Canadians get through this tough time. And, and I think that was recognized today, uh, that uh, there's, you know, this the student loan interest relief is is good. That's interesting. Uh, you know, there's some other, uh, for low-wage workers as well, as you mentioned, some boosts as well. Um, but realistically, not much they can do because they really have to watch out about how much they spend. They already spend a lot. They have to watch out about just how much they're spending in these times, no? 
Well, that's exactly the, the point. I mean, uh, if we look at what monetary policy is trying to do right now is essentially inflation is already eating away at our purchasing power, the purchasing power of households and monetary policy is saying, well, the, the problem here is that consumer spending is too strong. We're not able to generate enough uh, enough output. That's generating wage pressures and inflationary pressures. So what do we do about that? Well, we, in addition to the inflation, uh, you know, go out and hammer households even harder by saying, well, we're going to increase your financing rates, your financing costs. So in a way, uh, if we offset that with more generous fiscal policy, that's not really helping the, the scenario here of a soft landing uh, with inflation coming down. It, it's a tough situation, obviously, uh, for households. And, you know, you don't want to beat up on households and say, well, uh, you have to take this uh, this recession because, you know, this is what we need for the economy. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, the economy is overheated. And while some households are facing tough times, lower income households, I would agree, some are perhaps even seeing some job losses in some segments of the economy. Uh, but overall, we're at a very tight labor market. Uh, average wages, they're not caught up to inflation, but they're they're coming up very strongly in, in the rear. They're running 5% year over year right now. You know, that means that that 8% inflation number or 7% inflation number is only really eroding about 2 or 3% of our income, not as bad as it was uh, earlier on. And of course, most households have saved through this pandemic and their nest eggs or, you know, their socked away savings are pretty high. The stock buyback thing is interesting because, of course, the Americans did it first. They put a 1% uh, tax on it. We've done 2%. Uh, Will it work? This is essentially taxing companies who, instead of reinvesting their profits in their own companies, use it to buy back their stocks, right? I I think it's going to be very hard to try and understand what's driving – what you know, specific components, especially components like this, whether they're going to really have an impact on overall investment. I think the problem is in in Canada, and and essentially we were embarrassed that you might remember back when we put out the federal budget in February of this year, uh, we were embarrassed just prior to that because the OECD had talked about our long-term economic forecast as being the weakest in uh, real income or real GDP per capita among OECD countries. And the reason the OECD looks so poorly upon us is because our investment, private investment levels as a share of GDP are below uh, many of the other OECD nations. If we look at where we are in comparison to the US, they're at 15%. We're at 10% of GDP. And most European countries, Germany, France, they're at 13, 14% of GDP. So what's caused this uh, this problem? What it, why have we not been incented to invest in Canada? Well, uh, certainly since the Trump administration came into play, there was a lot of concern about access to the U.S. market. That hurt investment. Uh, we've had in 2015 an energy price shock that uh, declined, in fact, back then, that really took the steam out of energy investment. That's not really rebounded. Uh, but across the board, in 2018, we had uh, tax cuts in the U.S., corporate tax cuts that were quite uh, massive that we didn't counter with in Canada. Uh, so all of these things have played against our ability to see investment rebound in Canada. And of course, fast forward to today, and guess what? We, you know, we're in a pandemic. We faced a recession. Uh, now we're uh, concerned about where the economy is headed. Uh, and we, in our latest surveys in business confidence, get the feeling that firms are now very concerned about a lack of workers. Uh, the lack of skilled right. labor is holding back investment. 
So the bottom line is the challenge on investment is going to require more than some minor touches. I think we saw a few positive things in this budget, but very little money really, uh, sorry, in this economic update or in the or, or in the February budget to address this problem. Yeah, a buyback tax probably won't do the trick, right? Does, will it have any negative impacts or, or is it more of a political nod well, than anything else? Because certainly when, you know, every time you read uh, the business headlines, whatever companies use profits to buy back their shares, uh, tends to tends to get negative reaction from certain corners. You know, I, I don't know that this will have this, the intended uh, the intended investment. And what you want to make sure you don't do is uh, move investment completely away from our borders uh, somewhere else to another jurisdiction, and that can happen, uh, you know, uh, very easily. Um, and we've seen that happen over the past, well, let's say the certainly the past decade. So, yeah, I do worry about unintended consequences of some of these policies. Uh, I can't say that I know exactly, you know, what the outcome of this will be, given that the U.S. was first on this. This tends to be our biggest competitor for that investment dollar, North American investment dollar, at least. You know, perhaps that's not going to, you know, impact us so much. But of course, we we went with a double uh, of uh, a tax did, rate. Yeah. So I, I do worry about, uh, you know, that may incent some to invest more rather than take profit, uh, but it may incent some to just go south of the border. Yeah, it could well. Uh, the, the, perhaps a ray of sunshine in today's slightly stormy economic update was this idea that Canada, at least according to these uh, predictions, which aren't always all that accurate. I mean, we didn't think we'd ha- we we have a smaller uh, deficit than we thought we would just six months ago. Uh, but it looks like we'll be back in surplus by, you know, towards the end of the decade. Is that uh, is that encouraging or at least is the prediction encouraging? Yeah, I, I think it is encouraging. Um, you know, I think at the federal level, the situation, the fiscal situation isn't as bad as in many other OECD countries. And we are uh, seeing a path here that is positive. We're reducing our debt to GDP ratio. It jumped up to essentially uh, 47% of GDP. And we see that path in this kind of baseline, soft landing, you know, little R recession scenario. Uh, we see that improving. Yeah, so definitely positive news. What I would say to Canadians, though, is that uh, we're responsible for, in fact, the debt and deficits at all levels of government. And so when the federal government may be doing a little bit better than perhaps uh, expected just a few quarters ago, by the way, the provinces have seen their uh, uh, some improvements as well, of course, uh, mm-hmm. with commodity prices coming up and and nominal and you know inflation is good for government revenues in general, but uh, the fiscal situation for provinces is much more dire longer term because of the pressures on healthcare, uh, education, spending, and others. And healthcare is a huge concern. You know, right now we're seeing the baby boom cohort essentially the last of them kind of leaving the workforce over the last over the next five or six years. But down the road, uh, what that that baby boom cohort is going to do is pressure the healthcare system uh, massively. And the healthcare system, as we all know, strained. The impact of COVID is seemingly a lasting cost. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is going to be a, a long-term challenge fiscally. Just just one piece of the puzzle here. Uh, Petra Antunes, thank you so much for your time. You're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Well, it's fall. It's November. That means they're playing the World Series. I'm still hoping the Phillies can beat the Astros. Um, it's a tight one tonight. It's also time to turn back the clocks. You know that You know that always happens. You always sort of about late October start to think, when is that again? When do we turn back the clocks again? 
because they've already turned them back in England. It's been uh, messing with some of my interview schedules because they're already an hour. It's only four hours uh, between Eastern Canada and England right now, seven hours between BC and the UK at this time of year. Well, that'll all change on the weekend because we're going to move our clocks back as well um, overnight into from Saturday to Sunday. Um, I was wondering, what do you think of that? Do you mind? I, I don't really mind. I find the spring forward one tough. I think we all do. The fall back one's not so bad. Uh, should we get rid of it? That's been talked about a lot, hasn't it? A lot of jurisdictions are looking into that, but waiting for others to take, make the first move, so to speak. Um, and if we were to choose just one, what would it be? You know, daylight savings time is 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 fine. We get lots of sunlight in the summer and in the spring, you know, su- sunny evenings. It turns out its history is a bit so There are a lot of different versions of why that came about, but apparently it's because some guy in England wanted to play golf. Uh, I don't know how true that is. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, having a sun, having sun in the evening is leisurely. Having daylight earlier in the morning is really important. And it turns out that standard time might actually be better for us. But let me know what you think. 877-399-9898. So, as I mentioned, we're turning the clocks back. The good news Falling back doesn't seem to have the same kind of negative consequences for us that springing forward does uh, in the spring. If anything, we get to enjoy that extra hour of sleep. And while the sun does set a whole lot earlier, which is the worst part of it, you know, when the sun starts setting at like, you know, 10 to 5, you start to think, wow, you know, winter's on its way. Uh, We do get more morning daylight, which is also good, too, because, of course, I think all of us have been waking up in the dark for a little bit now. Uh, Again, there are ongoing efforts to stop all this back and forth by choosing one and sticking with it year round. A lot of jurisdictions favor daylight saving time. And yet again, despite the shorter evenings in the summer, if we had to stick with just one, maybe our bodies and our brains may actually prefer Standard Time. Joining me now with more on this is Patricia Lakin-Thomas. She knows of what she speaks. She's a biology professor at York University and head of something called the Clock Lab. Thanks for your time. I'm very happy to be with you. Tell me a bit about uh, about the Clock Lab. It sounds like a fascinating spot. Well, we are a research lab in uh, the Department of Biology at York University, and we study biological clocks the thing that gives you jet lag when you fly across time zones, but we don't study it in humans because that's too difficult. So we study it in a model organism, which is a fungus, and we are trying to solve the question, um, how does a fungus tell time? Because it can actually tell what time of day it is. It makes spores at a particular time of day, and we are working down at the molecular and the genetic level to try to figure out what genes, what proteins are creating a biochemical mechanism, a feedback loop of some kind that can actually oscillate in a 24-hour time so that the fungus knows what time to make spores each day. It is remarkable because we have sort of social time. That's the time on your watch or your clock. We've got body time and brain time. It feels like there's a lot of different competing uh, rhythms going on here. What happens then when we set the clocks back or set them forward, uh, in this case, we're setting them back. So we'll talk about falling back. Right. So it's just like flying across one time zone. So you have a clock in your brain that is set to light. It likes to clue into the sunrise in particular, and there's a particular reason for that. And the the clock in your brain, in turn, uh, sends out signals, both hormones and neuronal signals, to the rest of your body. And you have clocks all over your body. So in the liver, in the heart, and lungs, uh, muscles, and they are kind of slow to reset. 
So when you fly across time zones and you put yourself in a new social time, and the social time is the clock on the wall or your, your watch, your brain clock could reset to the light schedule in a new location, but it will take a little time for it to get the rest of your body into sync. So when you're jet lagged, your liver is trying to catch up with your brain, basically, and you your physiology is a bit out of whack and you can feel a, a bit out of sorts. So when we change the social clock at daylight saving time, we are forcing ourselves to get up at a different time when our body is used to getting up at the previous time, and it can take a little while to readjust to that new time. Your brain may reset quickly, but your body will take a bit of time to reset. And therein, I guess, lies the difference. And there is, and you found this to be a difference. And I actually didn't know this. I mean, I think if you thought about it rationally, it would make sense. But the impact that we see when we spring forward uh, into daylight savings time is not the same as what we see when we fall back, back into standard time. Why is that? In the spring, you spring forward. So you set the clock forward an hour. And for one thing, you lose an hour of sleep on Sunday morning. You have to get up an hour earlier than you were used to getting up the previous week. So everybody is an hour sleep deprived. Plus, you're moving your brain and body clock an hour away from what is a more natural time. In the fall, we're falling back. We're moving the clocks back an hour. So we get to sleep in an hour on Sunday morning. And that's great. Everybody gets to catch up on an hour of sleep. And believe me, we are all working sleep deprived all the time. So an hour of sleep makes us feel better. Plus, we're moving the clock back closer to our natural biological time. So let me define what that biological time would be ideally. The clock in the brain and the clocks around the body work a little bit slow. They're not really that accurate. They run a bit slow. They need to be reset every day. By an, by about 20 to 30 minutes, we run a bit slow. To do the resetting, you need clock. You need light in the morning. To advance your clock a little bit, you need morning light. If you get a lot of light in the evening, you set your clock even slower. You set it back even more. So we really need the sunrise, and humans really do clue into that sunrise. The ideal is for us to get up at sunrise. And in standard time, which is what we have in the winter, we're closer to that ideal time that the clock on the wall, when it says noon, the sun is at its highest point in the sky. That's solar noon. And those the social clock and the sun match each other. And so we are more likely to get up close to dawn and close to what our brain and body expect. In daylight saving time, we've moved ourselves an hour away from that. So in the spring, we're moving ourselves an hour away from our natural wake-up time. And in the fall, we're moving closer to that. And so it's easier to adapt to that. So in a nutshell, the body and the brain, for that matter, prefer standard time. They prefer light in the morning. Definitely. Uh, several different lines of research showing that we perform better, our health is better on standard time, and daylight saving time puts some extra stress on us. So when we look at, I mean, there's lots of talk about this. I really wanted to talk about the history of this because I didn't realize, I mean, when one thinks about it, there's always, you know, we hear stories about farms and kids going to school in the morning. But uh, listening to an interview you gave elsewhere, I was fascinated to know that it was actually 
you know, the whole idea of daylight savings time was kind of put in place by someone who wanted to play golf after work, which doesn't sound like it was for the betterment of, of greater society in any way, shape or form. Well, there are a couple of versions of the William Willett story. Um, right. Of course, we didn't have any standard time until the 19th century when railroads came in and towns in England realized they needed some standard timetables for the railroad. And they had to send people around with accurate watches to go from town to town to reset the town clocks from these accurate watches that were set in London so that everybody on the railroad lines would know what time the train was going to arrive at a standard London time. Because previously, everyone in every village would set their local town clocks to the sundial, which told you what the sun was doing. And, and you'd be a few minutes out from London time because the sun was coming to you earlier or later than it was to London. So everybody had their own local time. They had to standardize it in the 19th century for industrial reasons and train reasons. In the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, people noticed that we were sleeping in late sometimes in the summer after the sun came up. And wouldn't it be nice to have more sun in the afternoon? And shouldn't we be uh, getting up earlier? So William Willett, this British builder, uh, felt that he wanted more time out on the golf links on a sunny afternoon. And he also wanted working people to stop lazing around in bed on a sunny morning and get up with the sun. And it was his idea to move the clocks an hour so that we would be getting up an hour earlier and we'd have more sun in the afternoon. Um, the first place to actually adopt it turned out to be Port Arthur, Ontario. Yeah, Thunder Bay. Wow. Oddly enough, now Thunder Bay. Yeah. yeah. But it really wasn't adopted internationally until World War One, And that's when the first set of countries adopted the idea of daylight saving time. But it was then thought to be an energy saving move during World War One in order to save coal for energy purposes. So you've made a pretty clear argument here. There's a lot of movements or a lot of initiatives out there at least to try to put an end to changing the clocks back but a lot of them seem to lean towards daylight savings time that's really that whole notion of having light in the evening but you've mentioned that in the past it's run into some real problems when that light when the seasons change essentially it has been tried in the past uh, year-round daylight saving time of course most of the world doesn't use daylight saving time. We're talking about Europe and North America mostly, a few scattered countries elsewhere. Every study that's been done has shown there were never substantial energy savings. There was a rumor that farmers liked it, but that has never been the case. And if you ask a farmer, they will tell you, no, they don't like daylight saving time. Their animals get up with the sun, and the farmer right. gets up when the animals get up. And in fact, it can be a problem for farmers if they have to organize their work schedule with a business that wants them to deliver their product early in the morning, but the cows aren't awake yet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> of course, um, permanent daylight saving time was tried in the U.S. after World War II. They tried it again in 1974. 79% of the public thought it was a great idea before they tried it. After the first winter, public support dropped to 42% because people think it sounds great. You're going to get a little more light in a summer afternoon. And what they find is the winter mornings are really hard. Waking up in pitch darkness in the winter is really hard. 
So in the 70s, uh, in the U.S., they dropped it after a couple of years, even before the originally scheduled end date. The U.K. tried year-round daylight saving time for a few years, dropped it, and went back to twice-yearly changes. My prediction is that when jurisdictions here in North America do bring it in, they're going to find how hard it is on winter mornings, and everybody's going to hate it. Right. And we go right back to where this all began to some extent. I know many jurisdictions, I'm out in BC, they've, they've um, you know, there was discussion here of it. it it's, uh, I, I gather they're waiting for, it hasn't been passed yet, I don't think, but they're waiting for well, other jurisdictions to, to, I mean, many other areas say, okay, we'll do this when everyone else does this, right? That's yeah. kind of where we're at, yeah. So the status in both Ontario and BC is kind of equivalent in that there has been legislation passed. In both cases, they say, we're not going to switch until the neighboring jurisdictions do. So they're basically waiting on their U.S. neighbors to do this. But in the U.S. Senate, they did pass Marco Rubio's Sunshine Protection Act. Right. Isn't that, isn't that, what a great, what a great branding wonderful? that is. Yeah. Absolutely branding. The whole yeah. thing is because who's going to vote against the Sunshine Protection Act? You're going to tell your constituents, I voted against sunshine. You know? No, no. So it passed the Senate in the U.S., but it is languishing in the House. But the problem is everybody's talking about permanent daylight saving time. Nobody's talking about permanent standard time year-round, which is what the scientific evidence supports, that that would be the best for our health. I mean, nowadays, it's all done for you, isn't it, mostly? But don't forget to uh, set your clocks back this weekend. I'm sure you won't. Thank you so much for your time, no pun intended. Happy to do it. I've always been a big fan of spy novels and spy shows and spy movies. I remember watching that uh, Alec Guinness Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy way back in the 80s and watching it again. Man, it was very slow, but very, very good. So whenever I see a spy story in the news, it piques my interest. And this one is particularly interesting if you're Canadian or perhaps if you're a fan of the show, The Americans. The greatest threat the United States now faces is the Soviet Union. Hello. The Americans have no intelligence. Undercover agents hiding all over the U.S. No one has any idea who they are. Well, they look like us. They speak better English than we do. Maybe there's another way. I would lose everything before I would betray my country. You're my wife. Is that right? The Americans. Don't know if you've watched it. It's very good. It's about Russian spies undercover in the U.S. So, life imitates art. Last week, police in Norway arrested a man called Jose Giamaria on suspicion of being, quote, an illegal an illegal, someone who's in the country with a false name and identity. Officially, he was a Brazilian researcher focusing on Arctic security issues at the University of Tromso in northern Norway. In reality, police say he's not Brazilian, he's not named Jose, but Mikhail Mikushin, a Russian spy working for the GRU, the country's military intelligence agency. And here's where it gets really interesting. He had earned his way into that job in Norway by spending several years studying here in Canada, first earning a Bachelor of Arts in Poli-Sci or Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa in 2015, before completing a Master's degree in Strategic Studies from the University of Calgary. Christo Gozev, or Grozev is the Director of Special Investigations at Bellingcat. They're a Dutch-based investigative journalism group that specializes in fact-checking and open-source intelligence. They dug into this story 
and managed to find out a whole bunch of stuff, including that Gia Maria, or Mikushin, is not your run-of-the-mill spy. He's, in fact, a colonel in the GRU and would make regular return visits to Russia, including in 2015, while he was studying here in Canada. So what else did they find? Joining me now is Christo Grozev, Director of Special Investigations at Bellingcat from the Netherlands. Thank you so much for your time. What a fascinating story. Thank you for inviting me. This is a, a pretty fascinating story. Uh, how did you pick up on it? Well, first of all, we've been looking at a whole string of similar cases where Russian illegals would be parked in uh, different locations around the world with either near institutions, which can be universities or in one case, NATO, or uh, trying to infiltrate institutions such as the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court. So we've kind of developed a little bit of a taste for this type of spies that are called illegals. And when this story broke in uh, Norway, obviously we wanted to be the first to be able to identify this person and it took us about three days. So it's probably one of the fastest identifications we've ever done. It was it was very fast. You even congratulated Norway on, uh, on who they had found. So what did you go looking for and what did you find out about uh, the man that here in Canada we knew at the time as Jose Maria? Yeah, well, the first string of evidence that popped up was just his cover name, um, Maria, and the fact that he had traveled to Norway on a Brazilian passport and that he had studied before that in Canada. And that's how he actually got the job in the, at the Arctic University in Norway, because he presented credentials and letters of recommendation from the University of Calgary. So we started looking at all kinds of data that may be available on him on the Internet. And at this point, we only had the statement by the Norwegian authorities that he's a spy and that they're not sure what his real identity is. What we found strange was the absolute missing digital footprint of this person. I mean, even when somebody's planning to be a long-term spy, they make sure that they create digital cover stories, something that they leave behind on the internet uh, with, with social media and so on and so forth, that kind of legitimizes that person's past history. This particular one had almost no digital history. You couldn't find his photograph, Facebook accounts, and so on and so forth. So that was a bit strange for a presumed spy. So we were even thinking maybe the Norwegians had got it wrong in the beginning. I think for us, the critical moment when we realized not only is this a spy, but it's a Russian spy, came when we got his email account, the one with which he had sent his application to the University of uh, Tromsø University in Norway. And that email account, what we did was, uh, it was a Gmail account. We found out all of the different leaked passwords for that email account that are available on a variety of websites that show compromised uh, email accounts. So we found that in 2012, his email account had been compromised and a particular password had been leaked. And then we did a reverse search for that same password. And we found that there were 12 different email accounts that had used that rather unique and complicated passwords. And most of these additional email accounts had either something Russian or something Portuguese slash Brazilian in the in the name, in the title. So we knew, A, that this most likely belongs to this so-called Brazilian researcher because of the Portuguese titles in some of the email accounts. But we also knew that there's a Russian connection because at least three of these 12 email accounts had a domain name with a .ru account with a Russian right. email provider. So that's how we knew, okay, we don't know who he is yet, but we know he's most likely not who he says he is, and he is most likely a Russian. And and again, as you mentioned, you had already looked at other similar cases to this. So I guess the, the presumption here is that he came to Canada under false pretenses to develop what would be called a backstory, right? To develop these credentials, and then and then successfully made his way to Norway with these very credentials. Um, 
But we later learned, and, and you pointed this out too, that he was in fact Mikhail Mikushin. Uh, who is Mikhail Mikushin? Yeah, I, I really need to boast about this unique way that we found his real name. Absolutely, um, please do. Because yes. it is, it is. I mean, every investigation brings us some little gem of uh, incredulity. And this one was the moment when we found that one of the email accounts that he had used with that unique password was Mika-Invasor at Ramla.ru. Mika, well, is short for Mikhail, obviously. So we thought, okay, maybe he's a Mikhail. And then invasor in Portuguese means invader. So we thought, well, that's a great spy name, Misha the Invader. I mean, it's it's really stupid to be so explicit, but they do that. Uh, we know that we've, we've seen that they've used accounts such as Destroyer or 007 before. But then the question was what his last name might be. And that answer came from one of the other passwords that had been leaked with the same account. And that password had been Makushin spelled as M-C-U-S-I-H-I-N, which corresponds to a Russian last name, Makashin. Right. So essentially, we combined the first and the last name and started browsing through uh, potential matches linked to different addresses in Russia that are connected to intelligence services. And we had a match. Didn't disclose it. We didn't publish it because we're still trying to get a photograph of this person. But then when the Norwegians actually independently came to the same name, using clearly a different method, we felt, okay, we got we got this guy. And then we got a photograph from his driver's license and we saw the same face. So yeah, this, this is how we got it. And then what we know about him now is that because he had lived and had a car registered at the address of the military headquarters of the Academy of the GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence in Moscow, and only people who studied at that academy can have an apartment or a registration at that address, and anybody who studied in that academy means that they spent four years studying in the most elite of schools of Russia's military intelligence, and they graduate with the title of usually a major. And we saw that the date of that address registration was 2002-2006, which means he left that academy in the year 2006. And we're just counting the number of years since then and knowing how Russian military ranks progress, we realized he's no less than a colonel by today. And that's that's why we congratulated Norway for having caught the colonel, which is which is a pretty pretty good rank to, to have in your possession. How do you think you know he he was he seems to have left quite a trail, and he went back to Russia quite a bit. Once you started to un, to pull on the threads, a lot of interesting stuff came came out of it. Yeah, we we found something somewhat unusual. We thought it was unusual for Russian illegal spies, but uh, we found at least three cases that may make it a trend, which is that these people were supposed to live somewhere in, in the West with no known relationship to Russia. I mean, they have to have deep cover stories that, that are completely unrelated to Russia. They travel to Russia occasionally, at least once a year. This, I think, is the new breed of spoiled Russian spies because that was unthinkable in KGB times. I mean, if, if any any of you have seen The Americans, right. which is a, a story about similar long, long-term sleeper spies, they would never consider, I mean, being, being allowed to go back to the Soviet Union. But now they're doing that. And they're doing that in order to, well, visit their, their relatives, but also to get some perks. For example, we found that this particular colonel, he went back to Russia in 2016 and he got a free apartment from the government, which apparently was a thank you for your service. And then he got his driver's license extended because it had expired in 2015 under the Russian name. We also found that in 2012, I believe, he had gone back to Russia and he had bought himself an electric scooter 
and it even left a uh, sort of a, a raving review about it on one of the Russian uh, websites. It's almost like they want to be caught. I mean, I don't think that's the reason, but probably there's some psychological thing where you are so smothered in, in your new identity that you're given that you want to shout out to the world, but you can't. And that, that's why you're shouting into a hole uh, in the ground, which happens to be this, uh, this website. I think you raised a good question before the break, which is how often is this? Now, we've recently identified an interesting other colleague of Makushin, a female spy um, who we believe came from the same class uh, that, that he went to in, in terms of spy school because she got her fake identity in the same year that he did. She worked also for the Jiria, for the military intelligence, uh, which must mean that they were released into the wild in, at the same time, must have come from the same class. She tried to obtain Peruvian citizenship in 2006, same year that he got his Brazilian citizenship. But the Peruvians figured out that something was fishy in her application, and they immediately canceled. Shortly after issuing the password, they canceled it because they found out that the church birth certificate that had been used to as proof of her uh, having been born in Peru was issued by a church that didn't exist at the time it was issued. So there was a major blunder by the Russian legend creator, backstory creator. And apparently with the Brazilian cover story for Makushin, that was not a problem. It was, it was a pretty well done cover story. That leads us to a couple of observations. One is that they tend to prefer Latin American, South American backstories. These are multi-ethnic countries with a lot of mixed, uh, mixed marriages and Therefore, explaining your blonde Russian hair is easily done by having, oh, I, I had a German father who married the Brazilian right. uh, mother, and that's, that, that's, that's how I look like this. The accent is another interesting thing. The Brazilian version of Portuguese sounds very much like Russian. They have very similar vowels. That's one of the reasons why, why they picked Brazil. So far, we've seen at least three spies exposed this year that came, tried to infiltrate European institutions had spent some time in either America or Canada, all three were caught. I think it's a trend. I think each case of the disclosed spy discloses a particular set of tradecraft tools that are getting exposed. And this allows new governments and new counterintelligence agencies to find spies because of the previous disclosed spy and the tradecraft that has been already burned. Yeah, I can imagine the Canadian security services are looking over this one very closely right now to figure out how he uh, managed to graduate twice in this country. I mean, his cover story sounds like it was pretty good, but still. And, and, and just to give you some comfort, I mean, he didn't come directly to Canada. He spent some years studying in Malaysia. So after he got the Brazilian citizenship, he went and studied in Malaysia. And from there already, came to the University of, uh, if I remember correctly, Car Carleton was the first That's one. That's right, Carleton University in yeah. Ottawa, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do it well. They, they invest a lot. I mean, all each of these students, each of these personas, I mean, they cost about 10 million to create. And that's why it's, um, it's, it's a big burn when Russia loses one of them. And this year they've lost three. Remarkable. And and, uh, and just the fact that he was caught at last in Norway was also was also interesting. And then the work you did to uncover exactly who he was. Uh, Christo Grosso, a fascinating investigation that you've done. Um, and yeah, wow. It's uh, interesting stuff. Thanks. And the year is not over. <laughs> it's not. Not yet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So this half hour, we're talking about the spy amongst us um his name that we knew him as was jose Gia Maria. he was 
a Brazilian academic who had a keen interest in political science and international affairs and Arctic security specifically. Um, that's what he uh, was studying, uh, strategic studies. He got a master's in strategic studies from the University of Calgary. Uh, he got a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Carleton University as well. So he went to some of the more, uh, more you know, sort of some more interesting schools in this country when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, but police say that he is not Brazilian and his name is not Jose Giamaria. In fact, they say his name is Mikhail Mikushin and he's a Russian spy who worked for the GRU, the country's military intelligence agency. And here's again where it got really interesting. He spent this time studying Canada. So in the last half hour, we sp spoke with Christo Grozep, who's the director of special investigations at Bellingcat. They're a really interesting organization based in the Netherlands that does investigative journalism, and they specialize in fact-checking and open-source intelligence. You may have seen them. They did a lot of work on the downing of flight uh, MH17 in Ukraine. They did a lot of work on the chemical attacks in Syria. Uh, they do really good stuff. So they dug into this one, as they do, and they managed to find out a whole lot of stuff about uh, Mikhail Mikushin. Here's a reminder of what Christo Grozev had to say. Well, first of all, we've been looking at a whole string of similar cases where Russian illegals would be parked in uh, different locations around the world with either near institutions, which can be universities, or in one case, NATO, or uh, trying to infiltrate institutions such as the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court. The first string of evidence that popped up was just his cover name, um, Sergio Maria, and the fact that he had traveled to Norway on a Brazilian passport, and that he had studied before that in Canada, and that's how he actually got the job in the, at the Arctic University in Norway, because he presented credentials and letters of recommendation from the University of Calgary. So CSIS issued a statement this week to uh, to a news organization that did this story, saying there are important limits to what CSIS, CSIS can confirm and deny about this story. Uh, but just how easy is it for spies to build their so-called legends or backstories here in Canada to slip under the radar? And do we need to be more vigilant or is it simply the price of having relatively open borders? We welcome lots of international students. So you know, they're entitled to the same freedoms that uh, everyone else is to, to a certain extent. Still, what else could a Russian spy have picked up while doing all that studying in this country for the better part of a decade? Uh, the University of Calgary isn't saying much. They will say that its security studies program um, involves students in the program are taught by professors and instructors, not military professionals, to build a well-rounded understanding of the drivers of military security and strategic decision-making. So what should this story teach us here in Canada? If the fact is he was caught in Norway, he made his, he did his entire education here and went off to Norway with his credentials to get an even more prestigious gig. Joining me now with more is Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at the Royal Military College in Queen's University, a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press and certainly a suitable title for this one. He speaks to us tonight from Quebec City. Thanks so much for your time. Good evening, Ben. Now, this is quite the, quite the story, I found, especially when they started to sort of peel away at the, the layers of the onion. Uh, what did you make of it when you saw this all unravel in the last week or so? I wasn't surprised. I mean, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in 2017 put out an extensive report about 
collaborations between Canadian researchers, Canadian universities, and, for instance, uh, individuals and entities that have links to Chinese military and intelligence agencies and three Canadian universities ranked in the top 10. And I think on the one hand, it speaks to the uh, ongoing naivety of our universities that still pretend that they can be open institutions that can host anyone from anywhere around the world and that this is all about uh, benign collaboration. And it also speaks to the extent to which Canadian institutions are a target, precisely because on the one hand, they're naive and because on the other hand, uh, because Canada is a diverse country. And so it's relatively easy for anyone around the world on the one hand to make a home here and on the other hand, uh, not to attract too much attention uh, and if uh, individuals with um, clearly forged Brazilian entities can not only enter the country but obtain a student visa, reside here for years, uh, build a credibility for themselves, build networks with uh, political parties, um, you know, I think this should be deeply concerning for Canadians because it lays bare uh, that our national security intelligence system is simply not fit for purpose and that our universities uh, remain uh, extremely vulnerable. And that's, I think, tragic given uh, how much money the Canadian taxpayer invests in Canadian universities and that we're effectively funding uh, the education uh, and the knowledge base of our adversaries. Yeah, I'm sure he had to pay foreign student rates. But but I mean, his, it's interesting with his story, because we were talking to Christo Groza of Bellingcat earlier, who did a lot of work on just who Mikhail Mikushin was. Uh, and that as soon as he got his Brazilian passport, he went to Malaysia first. So he even covered his backstory. Um, but when, you know, when, when the intelligence community saw this story, you think, I mean, and there have been other similar ones of late. But when, um, I mean, you've written about the five eyes, when they see a story like this, do they all just, I mean, what's the, what would the reaction be like, do you think, inside the intelligence community when this kind of uh, long-term um, operation is uncovered? Well, it reminds us that uh, sleepers remain an important instrument for our adversaries and they can continue to be embedded. I mean, those people who have seen the Americans, uh, have streamed the Americans, will be familiar with some of the way these tactics work. Um, We continue to have, um, and, and Russia has long... Uh, had this very long range view, but uh, I think most people think that it's been limited to the United States. That's where from time to time, uh, Russian sleepers end up getting picked up. Uh, And so we're somewhat ignorant to the fact that all allied countries are ultimately uh, vulnerable to um, sleepers. And that in this particular case, Canada lent itself very well to building a legend, to building a backstory that this individual was subsequently looking to exploit uh, in order to um, make one of our key partners on Arctic security, that is to say Norway, uh, vulnerable in terms of uh, their particular uh, their particular knowledge base. And, you know, you think that um, adversarial countries would particularly target sort of the top tier universities in the country, Toronto, McGill, University of British Columbia. Um, But it turns out that, you know, in Calgary, in some ways, uh, is probably a a much safer place to 
hide out if you're trying to build that sort of backstory uh, because who's really going to suspect you of being a Russian sleeper when you're at the University of Calgary and yet at the same time of course the University of Calgary has precisely the sort of um, expertise in security and especially Arctic security uh, that uh, the alleged uh, GRU uh, spy here was looking to build and so I think we need to be much more circumspect about um, which particular knowledge bases in this country uh, might be subject to particular uh, exploitation. Uh, the Alberta government has uh, initiated uh, considerable restrictions on Alberta universities to collaborate with China. Um, uh, the Ontario government has now put in place um, uh, probably the most rigorous security screening in the country when it comes to uh, research funding for Ontario universities. Uh, there's now uh, a federal review of federally tr submitted tri-council research grants in terms of vulnerabilities, but I think it shows that we're really just at the beginning of trying to get a handle uh, what is a uh, pervasive challenge. His field of study would have come as no surprise to you then? Um, in particular, um, at... Uh, the Center of Military and Strategic Studies uh, in Calgary. I think this was, it, he didn't just randomly pick any one university. Uh, Carleton University has um, a uh, very good reputation in their uh, particular defense security studies and, uh, and uh, uh, as well as relations sort of understanding the federal government studying public policy, public management, public administration, uh, and then subsequently going on to the University of Calgary, uh, which is well regarded in particular for its capacity on um, uh, strategic studies uh, in, in particular for its capacity on Arctic security. Uh, yeah. So uh, this was quite deliberate. This was not an accidental sort of journey uh, across Canadian universities to see where he could find a home. Uh, Christian, when you look at, should we have caught him? I guess is sort of, because I asked the, the same question of the Bellingcat research and he thought, well, you know, he did have a pretty good backstory. If he didn't call attention to himself, he was going back to Russia, we found out. Uh, but if he didn't call attention to himself, how, how easily would it have been? And you know, you, you know, you're in a university setting. How easily would it have been to figure this out, do you think? So it's tragic that uh, the Norwegians, after a relatively brief stay in Norway, picked up on him. And that Norwegian intelligence in particular picked up on him. But it appears that that at least in part, was due to a tip by a colleague who figured out that this individual wasn't like any other graduate student and was behaving in a curious way and, and asking curious questions. And so it suggests that on the one hand, our security intelligence service uh, continues uh, to be uh, blind or simply doesn't have the resources and the capacities uh, to be able to track individuals like this, detect them and track them, uh, identify them effectively. But it also suggests that at both Carleton and uh, at the University of Calgary, uh, people were not up to um, realizing that perhaps sometimes uh, you need to pick up on odd behavioral patterns. Uh, so you need to be able to rely as much on your security intelligence uh, system to be able to identify individuals such as you do on just uh, 
simply smarts and awareness um, about possible vulnerabilities and possible um, 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 exploitation by adversaries here. And I think this yeah. is, if we have a vulnerable system, it means that, and people aren't asking the right questions, all the more reason why both security intelligence and universities need to be much more rigorous in identifying and vetting people. Yeah, it's certainly um, a wake-up call. I mean, it, it's quite possible that through his time, through his undergrad and his and his graduate studies, that he did keep a pretty low profile, or at least tried to be, you know, blend in as much as humanly possible. And then when he landed the job in Norway, this became, um, you know, this is sort of this was the target. This is I'm speculating here, needless to say. Um, when you look at how the reaction would have been to this story amongst our five eyes partners, for instance, what do you think, what do you think has been going on the last week or so since, I mean, this story is now about 10 days old. How, how, what do you think has been going on behind the scenes since uh, this was uncovered? Well, it's certainly not making Canada look good. And Canada is looking increasingly weak uh, within uh, the arrangement. Uh, it's looking weak in terms of the resources that it allocates. It's looking weak in terms of the uh, legislative capacity it has uh, in place. Of course, it is the um, the one G7 country that does not invest in a foreign intelligence service and that believes we can continue to do it on the cheap, even though the courts continue to curtail the ability of CSIS in particular to operate outside of the country. Um, and overall, um, I would say the last 10 years or so have not been great to Canada's reputation within the intelligence community. And what that means is that uh, the uh, more vulnerable you appear and the less you can bring to the table, uh, the less significant also you are as a player and the less intelligence uh, is likely going to be shared with you. And, um, you know, the fact that uh, many of our recent significant national security cases have effectively been tip-offs uh, by the United States suggests that essentially um, our system appears not to be capable to take proactive measures. It is tra tragic that uh, it takes uh, an opinion piece by Charles Burton and uh, a major story in the Globe and Mail for the RCMP to launch investigations into Chinese police stations in this country right. uh, that have been uh, known to exist for at least the better part of five years. And so it seems the only time we aggressively act on these cases is when somebody tips us off uh, or we have an embarrassing story in the national media that you and your co colleagues uh, draw attention to. And I would say at a time when we're having uh, hearings into uh, the Ottawa convoy and the emergency measures right. and the Emergencies Act that is revealing all sorts of vulnerabilities, it suggests that we really need to revisit the system that we have in place because it is simply not fit for purpose. Yeah, I, I guess as a very last question, quickly, would uh, would he have learnt anything of great value, uh, or or was I mean the education of it in of itself would be of great value? But do you think this is really about about building up his credentials for something bigger than what he was learning here? Yeah, I think there's three revelations here. The first is that, of course, we talked lots about cybersecurity and the vulnerability of data and of networks in Australia. The Australian National University had mm -hmm. its entire data essentially extracted by Chinese intelligence, by Chinese intelligence. And so human intelligence remains uh, an important component of adversarial activity. I think we're also learning here that 
uh, there's a lot you can learn without necessarily getting engaged in classified material that here mm -hmm. you're just trying to build up your knowledge and your knowledge base and credentials on um, Arctic security, understanding what allies and partners are doing, um, what their plans are, what their strategies are, what their legislations and their resources are and how they collaborate. Um, and the third is that Canada um, clearly was exploited here in order to build um, a legend to build a backstory um, and to be more aware of the vulnerabilities that our system has and what we're going to do to learn from this particular mistake to ensure that uh, we don't have that happen again and we don't look weak to our allies and partners uh, like a weak link yet again. Christian Luprecht, again, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Well, the province of Ontario and uh, the union representing some 55,000 education workers uh, are heading, the showdown is continuous. They didn't solve anything today. Uh, they use the notwithstanding clause essentially to take away their right to strike and impose a contract on them. Um, and in response, the QP and the workers said, you know what, we're going out on strike anyway. Uh, so that's, what's, that's what happened today. They're, apparently they're too far apart. They were in mediation. Uh, for part of the day, it's understood that uh, they've been offered 2.5% and 2% annual increases, depending on how much money uh, the individual makes. The union was reportedly looking, reportedly looking for something closer to six uh, after several years of wage freezes. And now, of course, the cost of living increases, meaning they're basically working for less money if you don't pay them uh, cost of living increases. Uh, and the union says that even though the legislation passed today makes it illegal and technically technically illegal for them to go on strike, it means big fines. For individuals and the union, they will strike starting tomorrow until further notice. This is Laura Walton of QP. This government was looking to find a bargain basement deal that didn't respect students, that didn't respect workers, that didn't respect families. The province, of course, has a very different view of all this, but um, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is even warning that this sets a bad precedent, not just for Ontario, but right across the country. Here's Noah Mendelson of Eve. Bill 28 is a catastrophe for rights and freedoms. This catastrophe could leak outside of Ontario and across Canada. Now, the province all along, uh, the Premier, Doug Ford, has said that they had no choice. This was about defending kids' rights to be in class. Here is the Premier. They have left us with no other choice but to proceed with legislation for the sake of Ontario's 2 million students and their parents. Schools must remain open. Mr. Speaker, we're using every tool at our disposal to make sure kids are in class full-time. Uh, the Premier of Ontario there. Now, just in case you thought they wrote these words themselves, here saying something very similar is the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce. For the sake of Ontario's 2 million students to keep classrooms open, CUP has left us with no choice but to pass the Keeping Kids in Class Act. Yeah, sounds familiar. Singing from the same songbook, so to speak. Well, what now? Huge school districts in and around Toronto, including the Toronto District uh, School Board, Peel and York Boards have already said school is out. Uh, many others are closed. Some are trying to move to remote learning. It seems unclear right now what exactly is happening on Friday. Uh, but with more on that, joining me now is Bronwyn Alsop. She's an early childhood educator in Toronto and a mother of two. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So we've arrived here. I guess this is really under any circumstances, regardless of what side you, you know, you think is right or wrong and all this. This is where you didn't want to be as a mom, I suspect. No, it's definitely uh, 
this whole experience uh, today triggered a lot of PTSD for myself. Um, I'd say the trauma from the last two and a half years of just watching uh, our kids, my kids, and overall the kids across Ontario and Canada just suffer constantly through the school closures, the inconsistency, constant disruption to their routine, putting them back academically, rocking their mental health. Uh, and finally, thinking as a parent that we're walking into a normal school year for them to have a glimpse of normalcy and, you know, their future. Uh, today, when my daughter came to me and she said, Mommy, carry my backpack for me. I have my Chromebook. I broke down. Uh, she didn't see me cry. Uh, I had sunglasses on. But it hit me so hard because I feel like we're right back where we were before. And it's yeah. it's traumatizing because this isn't just a strike. People think this can happen all the time. Yes, but there is the trauma and the PTSD that is gone that we have watched our kids suffer through. Uh, myself have watched it. I'm an ECE who works in a private daycare. I've worked throughout the right. entire pandemic, uh, watching my students have normalcy. And and when I would come home, my kids would be staring at a screen. My son is five years old. He was doing preschool, deaf and hard of hearing child in front of a screen. Mm-hmm. And and it's just we're we're back where we are, not for a COVID reason, but they're the kids are suffering again. And and I, I personally I am an EC and I want everyone to make more. I don't, I've never belonged to a union in my life. I don't have any benefits. I've never had paid sick days. I have never had anything in that in my, in my career. Um, And I understand the benefits of definitely having that security and to have financial increase all the time in your, in your career and the security, but who is out there protecting our kids right now? No one who protected them through COVID. No one. And I'm sick of it. I want to be topped. What are you going to do come tomorrow? I mean, I guess as an ECE, do you have any any way of making sure that they're taken care of, that they can do their uh, – is there online learning or are they just well, out of school tomorrow? There's, there's no school tomorrow. We we told we were told that the Chromebook – we got the email, uh, you know, they're going to try and do asynchronous learning, which we, we will not be doing. And, you know, maybe my daughter wants to to some extent, but – it, it, it's just going to be a nightmare. My daughter has ADHD trying to have her, you know, when she's doing the screen work and stuff, it, it just does not right. work for her. Um, and my son is five. Like it, it, we live in a duplex. We're in a small space. My husband has to work from home doing this or, and I'm, I'm also, uh, I got COVID in the summer, you know, vaccinated to the, you know, the fine nards, but I still got COVID and I've been on sick leave because I've had to have medical appointments because I have epilepsy. So I have, I've, I'm actually off and I'm, so I'm fortunate. You know what? I'm lucky that I've been on sick leave because I, it's not going to impact me, but I know if I was working in my job as an ECE, I have colleagues that are now able to go to work tomorrow because they're ECEs and they cannot go do their job in a private daycare because they have their kids to take care of. So yeah, you can feel it right through the system, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the Um, system, but it's the kids. What are they going to do? No one is to, to have a strike, I think was the worst possible uh, proposal. I I was, you you think think they should have stayed in. You think they should have stayed in and just figured this out. I think they both jumped the gun. I think they're both at fault. I, I, I appreciate 
you know, the what I, I sense from a political angle, Lecce is trying to do things because he knows the voters from his side, but the parents or the families will are, you know, lose it because, you know, if anything on their end, if he goes with this and, and schools aren't open, people will lose it, which they are. Yeah. So I understand the urgency. I don't think it's right from uh, from a standpoint, you know, to override this. I, I don't think it's helped anything yeah. in this situation. If anything, it's put a bomb on it. So I think that also the QP put a bomb by saying we're going to go to strike. People did not think that. People thought they'd do a work to rule or something. But that going strike first is like saying we're going to go to murder. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I know. No, it's said. funny. We first talked about this earlier in the week because obviously if you're outside of Ontario, you're sort of paying attention to it, but you're not paying a lot of attention to it. And I was talking to a uh, to an expert in labor law, and I'm like, wow, this felt like it got very, very serious, very fast. That both sides were oh. like, you know what, we're going to the wall here. And then I thought, well, exactly. if they do go to the wall, then you know who's left holding the bag or the school bag, so to speak? It's your kids, right? It's you. It's the kids. They are the ones that are suffering. And, and it's like my, my daughter, you know, she's not, she, I, she, I don't, you know, tell her specifically what's going on, but I'm going to see it in other ways that like coming out in her because she's not in with her peers. And that's the whole thing. Like QP is very important with all the services they provide. They are yeah. very essential. But the part that is missing constantly in all of this is that, from an ECE perspective, and especially in, in all ages, is that students learn the most in person, in the physical building, in with their peers, in with people they're role modeling on, and they're learning to get that confidence and skills and development from. It's not just the person who's educating them or extra support or everything else that's all the added layers. It's being there with people their own age. And that is the part that they have been robbed from for two and a half years of having this normalcy of being with people their own age to learn these development skills. That's how a child learns how to speak and talk is to yeah. be around kids their own age to have that. That's what my kids who are both are deaf and hard of hearing. That's what they need the most out of all of this. It's not just having the educators and the extra things, which are essential, but it's not, it's the key missing point is now that they're out of it and completely and it's wrong that the kids need to be back in there. And I think it's just so many things were missed in this and, and it's just now yeah. we're in war and everyone is using this as a political thing. We've got people marching out and roaring out, you know, in the cabinet to make it's a, what a happens, right? To make it it's worse. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah no, exactly. The kids, the kids are suffering and no one cares. And it's because they don't have anyone to protect them. And I know so many people who feel this way, but they are, they're mentally drained. They're exhausted. And, and no one has any hope anymore. You don't, we don't know who to believe. I'm politically lost myself. Like I'm, no one knows what to do anymore because we feel like we don't have any trust in anyone. If that makes Broadway, sense. It's, it's, uh, it's it does, it does. And, it, and it's just, it's, a, I mean, it's a horrible place to be. Listen, I hope this ends quickly. It might, you never know. I mean, I've seen these disputes. <laughs> this one doesn't feel like it will, but you've seen, you can see them end quickly. Uh, but I hope that for the best for both your daughter and son, it sounds like they, uh, they could use some, some routine and some normalcy. Thanks so much for talking to me tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, the situation in Ontario, the labor situation. Uh, the standoff continues tonight. Uh, mediation today between 55,000 education workers represented by CUPE and the province of Ontario did not work out. Uh, the province then used the notwithstanding clause essentially to strip their right to strike 
forcing them to go to work, imposing a new contract on them as well. And uh, QP has responded by saying, well, we're not going to show up for work tomorrow. So the strike is on, the battle continues, and uh, parents are left tonight scrambling, trying to figure out what to do with their kids tomorrow. Joining me now is one of them, Angela Brandt, is a mother and also president of the Ontario Autism Coalition. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me, I mean, so what kind of impact is this going to have, uh, at least in the short term? We don't know how long schools are going to be closed, but at least for now they are. Yeah, it's definitely going to leave um, a lot of parents uh, in a lurch, myself included. Um, I have a 17-year-old son um, with high needs autism and, you know, uh, other 17-year-olds may potentially be able to stay at home. Um, but my son can't. He needs uh, constant supervision. So, you know, I'm, I'm fairly fortunate. Um, uh, well, not fortunate. <laughs> I actually stopped working a few years ago to be a, a full-time caregiver for my son uh, mm-hmm. because I wasn't able to get the appropriate supports for him. So I'm fortunate in the sense that um, I don't have to make arrangements around work. However, you know, I also have aging parents and I have errands that need to get done and, you know, things that need to get done. And, of course, all of that has to be put on hold um, while I have to stay home with my son and engage him and uh, make sure that, um, you know, he, he he's um, doing something of, of value, not just sitting on the, the computer, playing video games all day or watching TV. Um, but, right. you know, at the end of the day, uh, I don't know if there is any really good uh, solution here uh, other than the government coming to uh, the bargaining table and, and coming up with something that, you know, QP accepts as reasonable, because if they don't strike, then they're not going to get what they need and our children won't be safe because right now, uh you know, there's so few uh, education workers uh, in the schools. They're so stretched thin that it's become dangerous for a lot of children, and especially children with disabilities. They're not getting the appropriate supervision that they require. Uh, but on the other hand, if they do strike, obviously our children still get hurt because they're not going to school and they're staying home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um what one sees from the outside here is that the two sides sort of went to war pretty fast here. Now I know there's a lot of, a lot of other things going on in the background. There's other public sector unions also negotiating. So this one's sort of the template for that. Um, but yeah, it feels, it feels like, you know, and, and also couldn't have come at a worse time. I mean, it's only November the 3rd, mm-hmm. right? I imagine that, you know, um, kids like your son were sort of getting used to being back into more of a routine that involved being back and forth to class and so forth. And all of a sudden that's stopped again, at least for now. Yeah, 100%. And especially for kids with autism, uh, not all, of course, because every child is unique, but generally kids on the spectrum really thrive on routine and they require routine to function in their daily lives. And, you know, being in the wake of the pandemic with all of the um, changes and all of the isolation. Now, uh, you know, I've noticed my son had regressed a little bit and now things are finally seemed like they were going to get back to quote normal unquote. Um, And now, you know, it's, it's back up uh, in the air, like what's going to happen tomorrow. And it's, it's, 
it's really a bad place to be. Nobody wants a strike. We don't want a strike. <laughs> but no. we also want, you know, our education and workers to um, be properly funded. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I honestly, mean, yeah. the resolution they, they just needs to be a timely resolution. That's the only answer. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to sit down and figure this out somehow, right? I mean, uh, clearly, clearly, the, the, the union sees this as as unacceptable. I think a lot of people outside the province see the use of the non-withstanding clause preemptively as, as, as a real unnecessary <sighs> option here, especially since it didn't end up keeping kids in school, which was the whole point to begin with, right? So it just felt like a bad yeah. play, but, you know. So it's, it just feels like such a heavy-handed play by the government. You know, they could have tried something maybe a little less extreme, more moderate in, in trying to keep uh, the union at the bargaining table uh, or, or, or in the schools, but they just went to the most extreme measure, which, you know, in my opinion, what they're doing right now is a complete affront to democracy. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, and we spoke to someone earlier. We sort of thought QP QP should have bent. You know, QP should have just said, you know what, we'll work to rule for now, and we'll keep talking. So, I I just hear from parents, and that's why I was really mm-hmm. curious to speak to parents tonight because I can just see that everyone's frustrated. People don't really know who to blame, and everyone's just like, "What? How did this happen? Why are we here?" You know, yeah. a week ago we weren't even yeah. talking about this, and here we are. I know. I know. You know, I was I actually attended. There was a protest in Toronto uh, at the Mm -hmm. Sheraton Hotel uh, this evening. Um, I was there. Uh, I attended the protest. I was a guest speaker there as well. And I was so happy to see actually um, so many parents were in attendance. And they were supportive of the education workers. Um, And I was actually happy to see that because the education workers, um, and parents and, you know, the Ontario Autism Coalition, we have shared goals. We just want our children appropriately supported in the public education system. Um, so, you know, I think I think what the Ford government is doing is trying to pit parents against the union. Um, and I'm hoping that that does not work. And from what I saw at the protest this evening, it's not working. Well, Angela Brandt, I really hope uh, this resolves it's gets resolved it's not going to resolve itself is it but it gets resolved soon um and thank Uh you so much for your time tonight yeah of course thank you so much for covering this